Sup, freaks, it's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I had the immense pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Saifedean Amus for the third time in TFTC's history. This time we focused on the two books Saifedean is about to release, The Fiat Standard and Principles of Economics. Principles of Economics is an economics textbook. The Fiat Standard uh, is an extrapolation on the Bitcoin Standard, but this time focusing on the ills of the fiat standard, how it came to be, and comparing it and its functions, its stakeholders, to the stakeholders in the Bitcoin network, whether it be miners, full nodes, devs, users. Uh, I think it's a very genius way to to compare uh, the fiat standard to Bitcoin. I think you guys are really going to like this. This episode was brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash Yep. Cash App is helping you send sats, receive sats, sell sats if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 sats because they made sats the standard. You can in the app. You can keep Bitcoin the standard if you want to. Um, but when you make sats the standard, you're stacking whole sats and not fractions of Bitcoin and it feels a lot better. Uh, you don't want to get unit bias uh, in the way. It feels like you're buying more when you're stacking sats instead of fractions of Bitcoins. Uh, you can stack sats consistently and automatically via the cash app as well you can dca daily weekly bi-weekly we got i don't even know where the front running is right now last i checked it was like 3 30 east coast time i don't know what you freaks have been doing uh i think the front running is happening at all hours of the day now on top of that you stack slivers of stonks if you so please uh if your favorite stonk is a little too expensive cash app investing is letting you buy as little as one dollar worth of that stonk um, since all this is connected to your bank account, there's no four to five day waiting periods. Cash App may even be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers to you freaks so you can direct deposit your paychecks into the app, start stacking sats immediately. They got their boost program too. You can uh, go to Partner Merchants, you get your personalized Cash App debit card, you go spend there, and you save some money. Maybe one day in the future, you'll be able to take that money you saved and automatically stack sats with it. We'll see. Uh, so when you download the Cash App, if you haven't already, what are you waiting for? Use the code StackingSats, that's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Woo! 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 Owls Lacrosse. Hope you guys enjoy this episode, and enjoy your day. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty here. Day before Thanksgiving. Last interview before before a long weekend here. Very excited for this. Uh, considering the content that's going to be covered and uh, the books that will come after this interview is released uh, in discussion of these books, I'd like to reintroduce you, freaks, to Dr. Safe Adina Safe, welcome back to the podcast. 
Thank you for having me, Marty. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. Big week for you. Relaunched uh, your site, revamped, looking new. Uh, you've got a couple of books on the way in the Fiat Standard and Principles of Economics, and I'm excited to get both. I've already pre-ordered uh, your economics textbook. Looking forward to getting that, but uh, have had access to uh, the first chapter of the Fiat Standard, and am especially excited for that as well. I think it's very uh, important that this type of information gets out to the masses at this particular point in time, considering everything that's happened in 2020. So. Um, let's jump into it. Uh, how have things been? Uh, what are you looking to get out of the launch of the new site? And let's jump into the Fiat standard a little bit. All right. So things have been good. I've been pretty busy building this website was a lot of work. Um, you know, I had the, the first website that I built last year was when I, uh, was kind of still, uh, trying, uh, things out and, uh, just focusing on trying teaching online. So the website was a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, uh, a first iteration it wasn't all that elaborate but now we've built up a whole uh, learning platform uh, which is much more interactive and there's a forum and everything so uh, it took a lot of time and effort to build this up um, but I'm glad that it's finally over now and it's up and running um, and the books have been a project that I've been working on for the past two years roughly I taught a course based on uh, principles, two courses based on principles of economics, which you can get if you sign up for uh, membership in my new website. Now you can get access to all of these. And I've also signed up for, um, I've also um, been working on uh, the Fiat Standard for about a couple of years, which is on uh, the, uh, which is now really coming together. It's a little bit strange to be working on two books, but you know, um, Inspiration is a fickle bitch. Um, you can't uh, time her, and you have to obey her. Um, so th th these two were how I've been uh, uh, working on this, and uh, they just came. They matured around the same time, so I expect them to both be finished around uh, next uh, summer, roughly. Yeah, I'm imagining it's a good pairing, right? The principle of economics is a good way to uh, understand the first principles of how to avoid the, the woes of the fiat standard. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and, and this is why really the two books came together. If I'm being honest, I wanted to teach a class in economics. I wanted to teach the two courses of economics so that I could review my knowledge of economics and um, you know get a clearer idea about how I think about all of these issues before writing a textbook on economics and before writing the fiat standard, which is um, an exploration of the fiat monetary system. So that's been, uh, um, th 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 that's really helped, uh, writing the fiat standard was helped a lot by uh, re rehashing my knowledge on economics. And generally, the best way to understand something is to explain it. So writing that book was the test of me just making sure that I have my uh, hands around this thing properly. Yes. So I guess with the fiat standard specifically, I think it's very interesting because you, you started out with, um, I hope I'm not spoiling too much here, but a quote or just a decree from the Bank of England about 100 years ago that probably nobody paid attention to at the time, but uh, started the, the transition to a fiat standard, basically uh, allowing the government to exchange notes with the postal service instead of gold. Um, and now fast forward 100 years later, uh, based on everything that's happened uh, since then, particularly in 1971, completely going off 
the gold standard having a pure fiat standard for the last 50 years you feel like now there's enough time that has elapsed to do a retrospective and, and really dissect the effects of, of this transition yeah and it's something you know you, you academics and economics don't really like to talk about this um it, it's just something that happened and it's it's not mentioned and so um there isn't really any kind of systematic examination of the question of how did this monetary system uh upgrade work out you know it's been a hundred years it's long enough to pass judgment like if you're if your system has failed in the first hundred years, you can't ask for another 100 for it to improve. It's uh, 100 years is long enough to be able to pass judgment on it. And I think, you know, the parallels, when I started thinking about fiat in terms of Bitcoin, I started, I, I structured almost everything in the book. And I think this is almost like an, an Easter egg hunt that the reader will go through and seeing the parallels between the Bitcoin standard and the fiat standard and the parallels between Bitcoin and fiat in that, um the things that you that that that, that uh, the things that are, were the characteristics of bitcoin that help us understand how bitcoin works apply them to fiat and you actually get a very good insight about how fiat works and i, I explained that in the introduction because well bitcoin is a free market monetary system and so if it works on the free market that means it works that means that it can um it, it can succeed in uh performing the functions of a monetary system. It has all the basic properties. So with that, we can, we, we can get a good idea about what these properties are, and then we can look at an earlier, more primitive monetary system like fiat, and then examine it by analogy. And so the whole book is almost an analogy uh, to Bitcoin. You know, mining, thinking about Bitcoin uh, mining in terms of fiat. How does mining in fiat work? How does new fiat get issued? It get issue, gets issued through lending. So once you think about it that way, it opens up an enormous amount of um, uh, analytical power that you can apply to this question where you see, hang on a second, mining fiat is lending. And that makes sense. That's why everybody's trying to always borrow because that creates new fiat. Just like there's a big reward to mining in Bitcoin, there's a big reward to mining in gold. Um, issuing a loan in fiat is an, an, an example of that. And so I, I took this, as I was uh, studying fiat in this way, I took this almost to absurd lengths, even with the beginning. You know, the first uh, paragraph in the Bitcoin standard is uh, Satoshi's email to the cryptography mailing list, where he says, I've been working on a peer-to-peer -peer network before, and so on, the famous email. And I, I went, you know, the first paragraph in the introduction of the fiat standard is what, in my mind, is the equivalent of that letter when um, the Treasury and the Bank of England told, uh, I made an announcement telling everybody in England that, uh, well, let me read it. In view of the importance of strengthening the gold reserves of the country for exchange purposes, the Treasury have instructed the post office and all public departments charged with the duty of making cash payments to use notes instead of gold coins whenever possible. The public generally are earnestly requested in the national interest to cooperate with the Treasury in this policy by, one, paying in gold to the post office and to the banks, two, asking for payment of checks in notes rather than in gold, and three, using notes rather than gold for payment of wages and cash disbursements generally. That's, I think, you know, that's basically the email letting us know of, hey, there's a white paper coming and there's a new uh, monetary system that's going to be installed. You know, we're somehow everybody for all of human history had been using gold and silver as money. And now 
somehow, you know, somehow because it's a war, for some reason we need to use paper. It's not entirely clear how that helps. It's not entirely clear why uh, this is the case. And it's not entirely clear operationally how this is going to actually be made to work. So this was, you know, the announcement. There was, there was no white paper. Um, nobody ever designed this. This thing, uh, this is, this was like a bastard child of government's rape of the gold standard. That nobody really uh, designed it. They, they made it up as they went along. And I think you know the the full implementation. In the case of Bitcoin, it came a few months after that email. Um, but in the case of um, fiat, it really was a 1971. So almost 50 years later, uh, that uh, this system actually got implemented. That we 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 had the working. Uh, we had a working system for people trading things without gold. 1971 was really when it uh, first came into place. So it was really 50 years of trying to install this software, you know, downloading core in fiat took about 50 years from this announcement until 1971, 55 years, 56 years, because 1915, I think it was, yeah, 1915 to 1971. So 56 years to download core fiat. And uh, 50 years now since we've had fiat running. So I think, yeah, it's time to pass judgment on it. <laughs> right? I mean, and in that 50 years between the Bank of England decree or announcement, whatever you want to call it, and the in 1971, the 56 years, you mentioned it in the introduction to many world, world wars, uh, a lot of blood spilled just to get this not just to, but a product of, of these wars is the fiat system. And I guess it, you dive into it in the book too, like how adverse of an effect has a transition to a fiat standard had on society over the last hundred years, in your opinion? I think it's pretty drastic. And I try and look at it systematically in uh, using two main frameworks. The first one is that... Um, Fiat is, uh, well, you know what, before we get into the bad side, let's do the good side. Because one um, one thing that I have to admit, you know, and Bitcoiners may not like this, but I think you got to admit that fiat does have some operational advantages over gold. It sucks in many ways and has a lot of problems, and we're going to talk about the problems. But I think before we identify the problems, we need to talk about the uh, good side of fiat or, you know, what fiat fixes. And... Fiat does fix a real problem, which is um, gold's saleability across space. So if you remember in the Bitcoin standard, uh, the main uh, analytical lens I used to look at all monetary systems was hardness or um, the supply growth or the stock to flow. And so I argue that gold is money because it has the highest stock to flow. So it's the thing that uh, is the hardest to inflate. And that's what made it become the money that killed all the other monies. And uh, with national government money, you also see that, that it's the stock to flow. And of course, then Bitcoin is important and interesting because it also has a very high stock to flow and it's overtaking gold currently. In the fiat standard, the analytical framework that helps us understand the rise of fiat, in my mind, is saleability across space rather than saleability across time. In other words, saleability across time is a measure of how much your money will lose value if you send it into the future. So with every year, it'll lose maybe three or four or 5% in terms of real purchasing power. Um, th that will arguably be measured or captured in the long run by the stock to flow. Saleability across space 
refers to how much it will lose value as you move it from one place to the other. So if you're going to be moving money 1,000 kilometers from one country to the other, how much value are you going to be losing? With gold, if you wanted to actually move physical gold and maintain you know, the scarcity of gold and the fact that it is a monetary asset that is free of encumbrance of debt, of credit obligations. If you wanted to move the actual physical gold, it's extremely expensive to move it around. You know, uh, Moving things around today is in general very expensive. And so moving physical gold around would have been expensive. On the other hand, fiat fixes this because it has very high saleability across space. So you can move it around very quickly because it's essentially fiat. It's a command. And you know, with the, with the invention of the telegraph, Fiat could basically travel at the speed of uh, sound, at the, or was it is telegraph work at speed of sound or light? Not sure. It's pretty fast anyway. Um, in any I case, sound. Huh? I said I would imagine sound. I'd imagine so. Yeah. So, it, in any case, much faster than gold. Um, so, fiat does have that advantage, and so I think obviously. The governments benefit from it, uh, banks benefit from it. It does have these advantages as well, which is what helps them continue to agitate for it and to continue to make sure that it uh, continues to uh, operate. But, you know, ultimately, the, the thing that keeps the thing running is the fact that you just can't set up a gold clearance system to compete with it because clearing gold is extremely expensive and complicated and risky and um, essentially non-viable without government uh, legitimacy and government uh, government letting it take place. So that's what fiat fixes. So effectively, in order to gain saleability across space, we compromise saleability across time because now the supply of fiat is essentially fiat. It's the order of the sovereign and the order can be increased every minute. The way to think about it, the way that I like to think of it is imagine that fiat's um, blocks are... Uh, you know, fiat had blocks where they cleared every 10 minutes or every minute or every second. At any block time, the central bank can essentially create new tokens and bring them in to meet anybody's obligations. So they can do this by borrowing from future obligations or they can just, even, you know, make, uh, make tokens for payment today. So somebody needs to make a payment the central bank can step in and make the payment on their behalf. And, you know, they won't need to take tokens from anybody else. It's just the magic of fiat. There's no proof of work. There's no, there's no Pierre Rochard there who can run their numbers and verify the supply for them. And so the central bank can just do whatever it is. It's, 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 it's just another shitcoin like Ethereum in that regard. Um, so in this regard, the supply... So the two causal mechanisms, I think, that really screwed over the world on fiat are number one, the fact that the supply can be increased arbitrarily and that in practice, whatever the uh, propaganda that uh, fiat enthusiasts like to use, the reality is we have 100 years of data from all over the world. We've got a very good idea about what the supply of fiat does on a fiat standard. In the Bitcoin standard, I ran the numbers from 1960 until 2015, and the average fiat currency increased at a rate of 32% per year. Uh, for that period. Um, obviously, that includes a lot of examples of hyperinflation where the supply was increasing very quickly. Um, so yeah, so this is this is roughly how fast it increases. So when you're doing that, you know, over a century, that is going to be drastically different from a society that runs on a hard money, where the money increases like gold, for instance, where the supply increases by one or 2% per year rather than the 30% average that the world has had to deal with over the past 50 years. So if you think of it this way, 
you know, the implication of that, the fact that money's supply increases, um, it decreases the ability of people to save for the future, and therefore it reduces the certainty of the future and increases uncertainty about the future. And that, in my mind, leads to the rise in time preference. And that's one causal mechanism to see it. And then the other one is, the other causal mechanism of fiat is the fact that uh, it allows government to distort any market by intervening through uh, basically allocating their fiat tokens to anybody in that market for whatever reason. And I think the, the amount of government distortion in the economy is something that is purely a product of government's ability to uh, make their uh, fiat tokens without any proof of work. And so in the second part of the book, Fiat Life, I examine several fields of life that have been, in my mind, disfigured by uh, fiat, by the influence, by these two influences of a high time preference because you don't have that reliable store of value that you can buy your future with. You know, you can't just um, like under the gold standard, people would collect small amounts of gold, small gold coins from their childhood until they grow up and are, they're adults and they can use it to buy a house. You could, you know, from small little coins, they'll accumulate value over time. You stack little gold coins, stacking grams or whatever they used to call it. And eventually they could add up because it appreciated just slightly every year. That's gone today. People don't think about the future as much because you can't uh, save. And in order to really try and maintain your purchasing power into the future, you need to invest. And that's uh, almost a full-time job that basically precludes you from doing anything else almost um, if you wanted to do it properly. So that really reduces the ability of people to save and raises the time preference. Yeah, it's like you mentioned, it permeates all points of life. And the one I like to think of uh, most commonly, because I just think it's too obvious not to point out, is the, the effect of the fiat standard on the university system, both from the price of a college education and its quality, um, which is why I'm very happy to see you actually getting out and creating educational content uh, around economics specifically that's separate of the university system that I was subjected to, unable to. I'd read Robert Mishkin's book, um, which was uh, really nothing uh, comparable to the type of first principles uh, economics that's described via the Austrian school. So um, I think we could dive into that, like how the fiat standard corrupted the university system specifically and um, I, mean, I think there's an argument, not even the university system permeates throughout the whole schooling system from kindergarten through college. Uh, it seems that we're breeding uh, dumber individuals uh, that are more susceptible to, to shutting down the global economy um, because of the standard. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's uh, there's definitely something there. I think the corona hysteria of 2020 is definitely the crowning achievement of uh, public education and uh, public universities. I think I have to say it occurred to me a couple of days ago, and I've been meaning to tweet it. Um, maybe I should even write a blog post about it or maybe a paper. But it um, generally on my Twitter, I've generally been uh, shitting on people who watch TV and read newspapers as being the people behind uh, the... Uh, most hysterical reactions to uh, uh, corona hysteria. But I think, to be fair, I really don't think it is so much TV and newspapers. These are easy targets, and yes, of course, they repeat that stuff. But I think 
this one is a higher level of idiot that we're dealing with here. It's, it's a much more accomplished kind of idiot. It's a university um, specific idiot. I think the, the level of um, education that is required for people to fall into all of the um, idiotic pseudoscience that is entailed in this hysteria is uh, beyond just uh, newspapers like uh, and the TV. It's, it's a lot of university education. So you'll notice that the most hysterical people, I think, you'll find a very, I would bet you'll find a very strong uh, correlation between how hysterical people were in 2020 and how highly educated they are. I would imagine it's an enormously uh, strong correlation. Um, I think in general, uh, with the issue of education, the um, and you see this over and over with fiat, is that because there is this infinite checkbook standing behind it, because you have the ghost of Neil Kashkari with his bulging eyes telling you we have infinite cash, <laughs> infinite cash, that kind of specter um, haunting any kind of institution is going to have profound impacts on how the institution is run. Like if you tell anybody, I got infinite cash. The most predictable being, you know, they're going to spend a lot of cash. They're going to find a lot of great reasons for why you need to spend more of that infinite cash on them. And uh, so if you look at what fiat education has done in the 20th century, whether it's uh, in um, um, schooling level or university level, it's uh, it, it's turned the process of education or the process of schooling, I should say. It's turned the institution of schooling into the goal. You know, it's it's not so much about the children learning; it's about us delivering this process of education because that process of education has infinite cash behind it, and it has infinite cash behind it because you know uh, people can very easily be emotionally manipulated about uh, education and uh, these issues. So we always, you know, we always need to give the children a better schooling. We always need to give children better school. So we can always get people to vote for better schooling. So practically, we have infinite cash for schooling. And therefore, that means that schooling just becomes this industry that is, um, that is really optimized for getting funding, getting more funding. How do we get more funding? It is not optimized for satisfying the, cu the customer because the actual customer is not the student and it's not even the student's parents it's the government that provides the infinite cash that's ultimately the i think the main driver of uh, how, how to think about what has been going on with education then instead of um children's parents paying and children's parents being able to judge what the 21st century what well, the 20th century has done is given a lot more um, power to the government that pays for an enormous number of the students and sets the curricula and finances the professors and, uh, and and finances the research at the universities. So it's entirely focused on the institutional aspect of it. You know, it's, it's, it's infinite cash for the institution of education. And unsurprisingly, that leads to the institution of education finding ever more expensive ways of delivering education while the quality of the education declines. On the other hand, on the free market, and we're seeing now the internet is, is routing around this in an excellent way. You know, now because of Corona hysteria, all these universities are teaching their students on Zoom. And so you have people paying something like $60,000 a year to sit um, at home in their basement, in their pajama, uh, watching a Zoom call. And you think about just how much waste is involved. If you can deliver that education with a Zoom call, 
you know, how much money the professor is getting paid on the one hand and how much money the students are paying on the other hand. And then think about just how much waste is going in in the middle and how much you could actually, um, how much more efficient you could make this. And in, in my previous uh, appearance on your show, we spoke about this and we spoke about, you know, why is it that we don't see Steve Jobs in education? Um, you know, because universities have no, re no use for a Steve Jobs. A Steve Jobs that improves their uh, product by 100x is essentially useless. Why do you, well, not useless, but it's not as, is nowhere near as valuable as somebody who can write a good research grant. Yeah, it's counterproductive to, to get those funds flowing, right? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't hurt to be able to deliver a good education, but it doesn't matter <laughs> next to being able to write a good research grant, you know? So playing politics and being able to write the correct research grants is a much more profitable strategy for universities. And that's, you know, that's why they're so political institutions. They're just um, completely gone in this game of politics because that's where their money comes from. So now think about the implication of that on the quality of education, but also on the quality of research. Um, research is motivated by uh, being able to tap into government's infinite cash. And so, um, you know, one common, one hypothesis I want to propose in this book is that this funding mechanism is a highly um, incentivizing for hysterical panic, basically. Because think about it, if I were to write research about anything in the world um, and my research is going to conclude that, well, you know, well, here, let's say, let's write about um, the Mississippi River Basin. Uh, so you go, you do research and you collect some very useful information and you put it in a book and a few people who are uh, working in that field will read it and they will benefit from it. That's one way of doing research. But then if you go and you say, well, you know, uh, the Mississippi is going to flood or climate change is causing the Mississippi to turn purple or you come up with some story where the world is going to end and um, things are going to be terrible. If you do that, the, the most important implication of your research is we need to look into this more. We need more research into this. And who better to look into this than me? the man who uncovered the great danger of the purple uh, flooding river or whatever it is. And so, you know, naturally the process selects for funding toward panic, for funding for panic. So you start off with 100 honest scientists in 1970 and the one whose conclusions are more uh, uh, panicky in their nature is more likely to get funding into the future. So I'm, even assuming, you know, there's, there's absolutely no, uh, ill intention on the part of anybody uh, to lie or anything. It's just simply the one whose findings are more likely to be con um, um, concerning and dangerous is more likely to get funding. So over time, over 50 years, you're going to see that that kind of mechanism is just going to lead to more and more reward for panicking and being hysterical. So that's one aspect of it. And then another aspect is that um, <laughs> basically, you can't do wrong. You So on the one hand, you have an incentive to panic. On the other hand, you have absolutely no disincentive to be wrong. There is no type two error, basically. You can't be wrong about a threat that was not there and bear any consequences for it. So if you tell the world, well, you know, the, the Mississippi is going to flood and it's going to kill uh, 50 million Americans and it's going to destroy the homes of 50 million Americans this weekend, and then it doesn't happen, nobody is going to ask you, why didn't it happen? You know, why are you being a chicken little? Uh, why did you do this? 
there's no accountability. You face absolutely no consequences towards being wrong because there's no market out there paying you. It's just bureaucrats who don't care. They're not paying you out of their own pocket. They're paying you out of taxpayer, well, not even taxpayer money. They're paying you out of thin air, fiat tokens. And, um, you know, their incentive is to just keep the jig going. Their incentive is to find more scientists to finance. That's, you know, everybody who's involved in government has an incentive to spend more because that gives them more power, more ability to spend. So on the one hand, you have a motivation for people to panic. On the other hand, you have no mechanism for correcting them. So no matter how wrong you are, you bear no consequences. And you have an incentive to publish. So I think if you add all these three um, institutional motivations where your entire job depends on getting published, getting published is more likely if you panic, getting funding is more likely if you panic, and uh, you face no consequences for being wrong, would you be surprised if you found that an enormous amount of bullshit research comes out of academia when you add all of these three factors together? No, not one bit. We've seen that play out time and time again this year. Who was the guy yeah. uh, from London? Uh, oh, yeah, Neil Ferguson. Yes, the guy who was boinking somebody uh, during quarantine. Yeah, he still gets on the BBC and they still interview him and he still gives his opinions about um, needing to make another lockdown. Uh, a quick summary, this guy uh, at Imperial College wrote this uh, fantastic model of what would happen if the coronavirus was allowed to spread. And there were three scenarios, or two scenarios, well, three. Do nothing. And if we do nothing, you know, then uh, I think it was three million dead people in the US and half a million in uh, Britain or something like that. And it would be just tens of millions of deaths all over the world, and it would be horrific, and hospitals will be overrun, and people will be dying in the street, and, uh, you know, it would be apocalypse, basically, unless you listen to him, in which case you would get a pretty bad uh, uh, epidemic, but not as bad. And then, um, you know, within a week, the entire planet was blanketed with press releases um, and, and media repeating this. And this is why, of course, yes, it is TV and it is newspapers who promoted this. But, like, ultimately, this was a college-grade uh, stupid, you know. <laughs> this, is, this, was, this was a bunch of idiots pontificating about, oh, but it's an exponential curve. That's why we have to stay home. You see, you, ha you don't understand exponential. It's the people who are dumb enough to think that them understanding exponentials means that the world has to abide by the formulas concocted by some fucking moron in some college in London. That is seen by an expert by many of those. So 2020, is this the year of expert delegitimization? Uh, the expert class delegitimization, if you will. I hope so. Um, but I mean, I don't know. It's, uh, we've, uh, we, we, we've thought this would happen many times before. Like, for instance, people who are into, like, uh, who, who've managed to fix their health by finally uh, not listening to what their government and doctors. There, there have been millions of people doing this for years, and every one of them thinks, well, next year everybody's going to find out and people will stop listening to the experts on diet. But no, Harvard Nutrition School still teaches that you need to eat uh, kibble uh, every day and, uh, and all of that garbage. They still teach it. Yeah, well, I don't want to say maybe this time is different, but I think one thing that's very evident about the the lockdowns of the economies throughout the world 
is the uh, inability of the people who are mandating the lockdowns to take into consideration the negative externalities and economic costs. Um, and maybe those costs becoming more obvious as time goes on and people continue to, to be out of the workforce, the people finally realize, like, whoa, this was a terrible decision. So I think that's a good topic to jump into. Like, what are the negative externalities of these lockdowns? Uh, what effect is this having on society? Uh, economic effect that's not really seen by the experts that shut us down. Ooh, where does one start? Um, well, I think in my mind, the uh, the thing that I was uh, stressing the most at the beginning of this hysteria, and, and back in March, I, I kept uh, tweeting an article by Hayek on um, macroeconomics, and on the complexity of society and the complexity of economic systems and just simply trying to explain to people that um, and and this is again this is the stupidity of the college educated uh, um, which is that you know hey this guy said we can uh, flatten the curve if we just stay home for a couple of weeks so let's start flattening the curve by staying home and then you know somehow you know everybody stays home and then we pick up we, it's just like you know you're playing a video game you save the settings you go do lunch come back and resume and then SimCity just continues all over again. Everything was posed. And I was always trying to explain to people that economics and an economy is not like that. An economy is a living ecosystem. So you can't take a jungle and freeze an entire jungle and then come back three months later, uh, unfreeze it and then expect everything to resume as it was. That's just not how living things work. And I think the... Um, you know the, the the devastating impact on businesses um, is, is 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 going to be well. It has been enormous. I mean, I think e even e even in my mind, I did not expect that you would get this many businesses going out of business and this many people becoming unemployed and losing their jobs. It's been absolutely amazing. And what's what's even more amazing is how it's just completely normalized. Like the the unemployment numbers that came in in March and April um, were. 10 times higher than the previous highest number ever. It's insane. I think the highest number ever was 600,000, and then we got something like 6 million in March in just one week. So 50, 60 years of data, and then in, in, in two months, you break that. And we haven't gone down beneath that number since then. So we've been over the highest week ever for every week since March. Now it's been eight months. Every week has been above that. Uh, above 600, 700,000 or something like that. So it's it's absolutely incredible what's happening and how devastating it is. And, um, you know, the the, the, um, the destruction of capital, I think, is, is probably the most um, gruesome aspect of it. Of course, you know, the humanitarian aspect is, is the obviously the most uh, uh, concerning. But I think in, in, in economic terms, thinking about what is happening to the stock of capital that just gets frozen and then is lost. This, in my mind, is like the biggest um, catastrophe here um, because it leads to the humanitarian catastrophe. And, and the way that I like to think of it is, you know, any shop, any um, uh, business anywhere, in order for your local um, pizza place or your local um, computer repair shop or whatever little shop you have in your neighborhood, in order for that place to have been there and be operating and have customers or your dry cleaner or whatever it is it's you know for the um, college educated idiots looking from a computer it's just a business that's there you know it's just uh, 
people go work and clients come in and if you stop them you know you stop a laundromat from working for a few weeks then um, you know people just have to wear their clothes a few times extra and then life goes on but actually what ends up happening is that as as an economic living thing you got to understand that for that to have been there that's an an enormous number of uh, years of experience and learning and education and capital accumulation that went in to make this happen. You know, somebody had to save the money or had to have a large amount of money in order to be able to buy that shop and buy the capital that needs to go into it and train the workers that are uh, working in it. All, all of that is embodied capital that is in that shop. And as long as that shop is operating, let's say it makes $10,000 of revenue every uh, month, and that helps them pay off their bills and they keep a few thousand dollars uh, extra every month. As long as this is running, then that ecosystem is living. But then you shut it off for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, then, you know, say the workers can no longer afford to keep living in the city, so they have to move back. So now you need to get new workers. The machines, you couldn't maintain them for a few months because they weren't working. The, the quality of the machine degrades and now they need a lot of money to be maintained or some of them need to be uh, thrown away. So the value of your capital declines. The uh, amount of human capital that you have available has declined because your workers can no longer stick around. And, um, you know, it, it becomes much more likely that you shut down. And then once you shut down, you know, the, 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 the idiot way of thinking of it is, oh, well, this guy has shut down and all these other businesses were shut down. Well, you know, other businesses will come in. And the difference, of course, is that this is not a business that was unprofitable that shut down. If it was an unprofitable business, it's a good thing that it shuts down because then, yeah, the workers can go work somewhere profitable and the real estate can go to somebody who uses it profitably and all of everything gets reallocated. But this was already profitable. And the fact that it was profitable means that it, you know, it, it, it making a profitable business is only easy to the idiots who never try it and are constantly working with um, reality on a computer. Um, it, it took many years to be able to build that, for the owner to be able to have that amount of capital and to be able to provide his customers with that service in that, in that location at that cost. It's an enormous process of capital accumulation that is very intricate and it's constantly failing. You know, you have that one laundromat now, but there was the one before it that tried these other kinds of machines that were too expensive and then it didn't work and that went out of business. This new one came in. So it's a very long process of constant trial and error in order to get to the point where this one business is currently serving the customers. And then when you go and you suffocate that business for a couple of months, you kill it and you kill all the capital accumulation and all the knowledge and now everybody has to start over. You know, the owner has lost his capital. The workers have lost the place that where they could use their knowledge productively. They need to find another job. The neighborhood has lost its laundromat. And so now everybody's laundry is going to be more expensive for the next five years until another place comes along because everybody needs to lug it to the neighborhood uh, next to them or whatever. And so just an enormous chain of uh, reaction, uh, enormous chain reaction of implications from the fact that this was a living organism this was a successful business that was adding value and it was strangled completely needlessly there was absolutely no need for it to die so all of that capital is lost and so now I'm using the example of a laundromat just to sort of make it easy but I think the, the more devastating um, thing to think about is it, 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 not in laundromat think about these businesses that are essential for food supply and businesses that are essential for um, all kinds of businesses, uh, particularly in the third world. And you see, you know, the, the poverty and um, 
malnutrition and diseases are beginning to take an enormous toll on people in Africa and in India and in, 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 in poor countries because there, you know, people are on the brink of survival. They need to wake up every morning and go and struggle all day in order to survive every day. And so you stop them from working for a few months. You're going to really, really endanger their survival. And also you're going to destroy all of that essential capital that is built um, and, and, and can... Uh, and, 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 and is providing them with their sustenance. So the implications of this are going to be absolutely horrific. I mean, I think, you know, the virus is going to eventually go away, or if it hasn't already, uh, for the vast majority of humanity, you know, we've never had viral infections that have lasted very long. It's going to go away, and the implications of this are going to remain with us for many, many, many years, I think. Right, it's extremely messed up especially when you consider the uh the reaction to government shutting down which is like let's just print a bunch of money airdrop it it'll fix the problem and as you just described like it's really crushing the backbone of these economies which are small businesses which are arguably uh the most market information rich like the the small local community business is the market's reaction to price signals from that local community and just suffocating that and trying to uh, micromanage it from the federal level it seems like a, a very 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 bad idea um, and then you, you just allow people to, to buy alcohol and uh, get prescription drugs throughout all this too to, to exacerbate some of the problems that are going on I don't think this has been well thought out at all and it's been, it's probably been, I mean, I, I know you, you don't really, oops, sorry, I got some static here in my headphones. I know you probably don't care about, uh, like what people think about what you're tweeting, but you've been a staunch, um, stalwart and standing up against the lockdowns in a year in which that's been very unpopular. So, uh, I think it's admirable that you've had the courage to, to put your, yourself out there and say, Hey, this is idiotic. In, in the face of uh, a great majority of people uh, cheering it on to an extent. Yeah, it's been absolutely shocking just watching how many people um, just turn to complete idiots because of fear. And um, yeah, I mean, this is quite alienating to people, but um, uh, it's alienating to the right people. I think being outspoken is an enormous time hack and productivity hack, which I highly recommend because I am, I've saved infinite number of hours from wasting time on idiots I don't respect by, um, you know, getting in my insults early on Twitter and alienating them and making them think that I definitely sh um, wouldn't like them. So, um, I mean, yeah, the internet, Twitter is not a family gathering. Um, it's a place for strangers and you don't have to follow my account. If you don't like what I'm tweeting and you come at my account to inform me that you don't like it, you're just a fucking idiot um, who doesn't know how to use Twitter. Go and find an account that has the things that you like and leave me alone. Um, but of course, it's, it speaks to the mental weakness of people who just can't tolerate the idea that somebody they know or somebody they like, somebody they respect, somebody who read a book that they, who wrote a book that they like, 
thinks different from them. And so it, it really triggers them because it's, it's, it's incongruent with their image of themselves as being um, intelligent. So somebody they like must like what they want. And if he doesn't, then, you know, we have to go hurl abuse at him. Uh, but it's okay. Um, I, I don't mind it. The block button is Twitter's uh, killer feature. But uh, I think the, the, the interesting thing about what you were saying is that um, Fiat, you know, allows um, this kind of giant reset to happen where they put all these businesses out of business and then, uh, you know, somebody gets to decide who gets to operate. It, um, simply through the fiat allocation process, th simply through mining. You know, everybody is always, every business is basically going to go out of business if there's a liquidity crunch. If there's a liquidity crunch and interest rates rise, pretty much the vast majority of businesses are leveraged and would go out of business. Very few businesses have enough cash balances to last them through uh, a liquidity crunch. And so in that situation, basically being able being the central bank means that you can decide you, you get to unilaterally decide which businesses live and die and that's ultimately what fiat allows because you know in order to move to the next block your coins are not in in the fiat system your coins are not there because you have the private keys your coins are there because the government and the central bank say that you get to keep them until the next block any block, you know, they could go in and pounce and take your money, take your business, take your cash balance, um, stop you from operating. So this, um, you know, it's in, in the mind of uh, the modern kind of uh, democracy, this is viewed as like a check on the market. You don't want people to go too crazy. So you want the government to have the ability to take money out of people's accounts if they do something illegal. And you want the government to shut down businesses that do bad things because, you know, government is looking out for us. So it starts off with this nice kind of justification. But effectively, what we're seeing it devolve into now in this year, and I think this is truly momentous year in the history of the West because people, um, most people today have absolutely no understanding of just how out of... Uh, um, out of the ordinary I, 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 compared to the rest of the history of the West, these measures are, where now we're at a point where essentially all businesses are alive by the grace of their local uh, um, government, basically, well, local or national government, whatever it is. But effectively, you know, it's, it's uh, it, it, no business can survive anymore without the, um, with, without a, the monetary lifeline from government and the central bank by, um, giving them QE or giving them business support or all of that. And secondly, by the um, regulations of our health czars who have suddenly discovered that all these idiotic measures of wrapping people in face diapers and um, putting them apart from each other are the only way to protect from disease. None of these people had ever heard about any of these things as a way to protect from diseases last year. Suddenly getting uh, the... Uh, seal of approval from the priests of this um, stupid religion. Yeah, the expert class. Yeah. Don't you dare think about taking vitamin C, vitamin D, maybe exercising, getting in shape. That's no way. I don't. I remember how many people laughed at us uh, when we would bring that up in March and April. Like, what? Look at those idiots. They think that eating healthy can protect them from a virus. <laughs> how does that have to do with anything? The virus will kill you no matter who you are. All right. The fiat food leading to uh, more susceptible to to a virus. Yes. Be careful, freaks. Yes. Exercise. Eat well. It's. I am in 
just I, we don't have to focus on the lockdowns and all that. I guess the last thing, the lack of critical thinking that's been displayed this year is, has been eye-opening, jaw-dropping. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And it's, 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 I think the other thing that I want to mention in the chapter on fiat science, which I wanted to call fiat science, but I'm now, I'm probably going to change the name to fiat religion. Uh, because really fiat science is not science. It doesn't serve the function of science to the individuals that believe in it. It serves the function of religion. It is a religion. And so, um, you know, if you know religious people, if you know people who are extremely religious, their uh, sense of uh, truth will go, f will um, derive from religious authority. And so, you know, if you want, if you ask them a question, the answer is what is in that authority. And that's exactly what science is today. And that has nothing to do with what science is about. The scientific method refers to experimentation. So it refers to, it's just a way of asking questions. You answer, a, you ask a question and you answer it scientifically. It's not a set of answers. It's not a set of scriptures. It defeats the whole purpose. There's no set of scriptures that are what the science says. Such a thing cannot exist, will not exist. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a method is separate from what answers you get from it. So you can apply it to any question and come up with any kind of different answers uh, to a question. But the idea that science makes statements, makes clear statements about what the world is, is just ridiculous religious fiction from 21st, 20th century religion of the state. It's people who just think that religious authority... Yes, yeah, sorry, you want to say something? No, I was going to say, it's my favorite phrase. Just listen to the science, bro. Just listen, listen to, to the, the science. science exactly listen to the science it's the new priest like how could you how could you suggest that the priest is lying it's the priest like if he's lying you know the whole church is wrong and we can't contemplate that so clearly you know if imperial college guy says that we are going to have three million people dead if we don't lock down then clearly he's right and of course you know amazingly you look at all the countries that didn't lock down you know you, we have evidence from indisputable evidence we see football games in belarus you know the belarus football league concludes this weekend it's been 30 weeks that they've been playing non-stop since march um every week and they've had the stadia open people have come in and out and the number of people that have died in belarus is no different from what dies in belarus every year we've had all these demonstrations in belarus when they had um a massive summer um election and then um demonstrations and all of that stuff and a million people gathered in Minsk at some point they had military parades school was going on churches were going on you know churches where all the extremely dangerous uh, <laughs> reckless singing takes place they were still operating in Belarus and you know Belarus continues to survive and it's amazing how none of these idiots will consider this like nobody will come along and say well maybe we were wrong about the fact of how severe this thing is because look at Belarus. No, everybody wants to just ignore Belarus and not even look at it. Or of course, even Sweden, you know, they'll um, ignore that. But in, in all countries in the world, no matter what they did, the number of people who died in this country is no different than what uh, in this year is no different from the number that dies every year, more or less. That's ultimately what it comes down to, regardless of what you did. Sure, there's variation, but the idea that there was some kind of deadly pandemic that would cause deaths and it was only these extremely expensive and extremely destructive measures that stood between us and complete mass destruction is completely idiotic hysteria. It's, it's, it's not something that anybody serious could think. Yeah. And 
Yeah, we're about to roll into it again. It's a shame that I got very politicized, too. It was just used as a, a political chess piece, if you will. Uh, but back to the topic at hand, the fiat yeah. standard. I guess, I guess we touch on fiat religion there a little bit, but I think uh, to touch on the structure of the book, I really like um, in the introduction you describe, like just imagine it picking up from the Bitcoin standard after chapter seven instead of describing Bitcoin, uh, describing this this fiat standard. Um, so I think describing the why and the how instead of um, what is actually going in is, is very important. And I think this book will serve a similar purpose to the Bitcoin standard of illuminating uh, individuals about how things actually work and why you should be paying attention to this stuff. And um, I think now is a better time than ever to get this type of content out to the world. Yeah, I think, you know, um, if, if we're going to be um, replacing the fiat standard over the next decade or two, or who knows, maybe over the next year or two, um, we need to know what we're going to be replacing. Um, and I think we need to just take a very close look at, uh, at the operating system. Think about uh, the monetary system as almost like the base layer of society or like the operating system of society in that this is, you know, where all interpersonal interaction, uh, material interpersonal interaction flows. And so that's an enormous amount of interaction in society that has to go through this monetary system. And if it, uh, you know, if you study its properties and you study how it works, you'll see different, uh, you'll see the impact that it'll have. And I think uh, the, the key insight is understanding the, um, and understanding that in order to understand how Bitcoin um, acts. So, you know, I think if you wanted to read the two together, you'd read the first seven from uh, the Bitcoin standard, then you'd read the first 15 chapters from uh, the fiat standard, then uh, the last three from the Bitcoin standard, which discuss Bitcoin, and then you'd come to the last seven from uh, the fiat standard. Fiat standard has twice as many chapters, but they're shorter chapters. Um, so in the Fiat Standard, then you come to the last seven, which is uh, the discussion of how Bitcoin fixes this, or can Bitcoin fix this? And effectively, I think the monetization of Bitcoin is the deep solution to this because Bitcoin is finally going to stop us from having to monetize debt. We've been monetizing debt for so long. So now everybody in, on earth basically is up to their eyeballs in debt. Anybody that earns uh, a dime of money has uh, essentially borrowed against it. Every dime of money earned by anybody anywhere has been borrowed against it because it's so enormously profitable to borrow against it. But now we can't make more debt anymore because nobody wants to borrow effectively. And that means that we can't make more store of value for people because debt was what people used to store value in. So now we can't make more store of value for them. And we need something else. And the, 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 the problem with debt is that you always need somebody to take the other side for it. Whereas uh, in order for you to use it as a store of value. Whereas with Bitcoin, you don't have that problem or with gold because it's just the value is in it. It doesn't need anybody to do anything. It's a hard asset and whose value is determined on the market, free of any encumbrance, free of anybody's liabilities. Nobody needs to do anything for your gold coin uh, to shine and um, get its value on the market. And nobody needs to do anything for your Bitcoin to um, be liquid on the market. Um, 
so I mean, nobody has to, well, the miners need to mine and so on, but you know, nobody has to uh, make a financial, uh, pay off a debt or take on a financial liability in order for your asset to work. So I think it's, Bitcoin is like an, an, an excellent, elegant solution to all of the problems of fiat because we, First of all, it gives us a hard money that fixes the issue of time preference. Remember I said the two causal mechanisms? Fixes the issue of time preference by giving us a harder money so we go back to what we had under the gold standard. And then secondly, fixes the problem of debt monetization. Fixes the problem of the entire world having to monetize debt. So we start monetizing hard asset. We stop monetizing debt. And then we stop having to all be in debt. And we stop living in a world in which you know government being able to allocate credit is able to overrun everything in the market. We'll have a free market in which uh, the consumers who spend their hard-earned money determine what happens on the market. That's the promise of Bitcoin. That's how Bitcoin fixes this, I think. And should bring a better quality of life, right? You shouldn't... A <laughs> uh, uh, life uh, led by holding a hard asset instead of debt seems much less stressful, uh, much higher quality to for the individual and then you think of the collective effects on society as each individual has uh, a better quality of life and uh, it's it, it makes a lot of sense and then you think about why we transitioned away from the gold standard to the fiat standard basically making that trade-off of saleability versus uh, of in space versus time bitcoin allows us to to have both of those which is uh probably um, will be the impetus for a transition to the Bitcoin standards that is actually a better good that provides uh, more utility than the fiat standard. You don't have to make that time and space trade-off anymore. Yes, it's amazing. It's uh, it, it puts humanity back on track to continue to improve and accumulate capital and lower our time preference to become more and more civilized because the 20th century was one giant detour away from that. Right. The barbarism of fiat. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing what you do, writing writing this book, getting this content out there. Uh, I think it's very important. I think uh, in a chaotic, frankly stupid world filled with bad information and noise, uh, getting this type of content out there, whether it be the Bitcoin standard, principle of economics, or the fiat standard, uh, I think it's important information. People are taking it, running with it. You have billionaires in Mexico tweeting about you, know, reading your book, uh, sharing it around the world. What's in it, 26 languages now? 25, yeah. 25, well, um, very excited to see uh, the launch of your next two books. Where can we find out more about them? I know we can pre-order them. Uh, where can we find out more about what, what you're doing today? Yeah, you can subscribe now to get uh, chapters from the Fiat Standard uh, every uh, two weeks and a uh, chapter from the Principles of Economics every two weeks. So one chapter a week you'll be getting from me. If you join safedean.com, $15 a month or $100 a year. And that also will allow you access to all four of my online courses on uh, safedean.com, Economics 11, 12, which is uh, Principles of Economics 1 and 2. And then my Bitcoin standard course and my hard questions on hard money course, which is effectively the, the genesis of the fiat standard. Uh, the ideas of this course were to later grow up and uh, become the fiat standard. So you can take all those four courses and see the chapters of the two books by joining on safedean.com. And uh, I'm also on uh, Twitter at safedean. 
come say hi, um, but don't talk to me about your shitcoin or about, and don't tell me what I should be talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Block button is a very, a very useful tool on Twitter. Yes. Um, safe. Thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure doing this. Uh, congrats on uh, the, the new site and uh, good luck finishing and releasing your books. Thank you so much, Marty. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. It's always a pleasure. Peace and love, freaks.